You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Boulder Weekly is being brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Just a Wink of the Eye by Adam Perry. A Volcanic Love Triangle by Michael J. Casey. Corn Do's and Don'ts by John Lindorf. The Distilling Dames of Dry Land by Matt Mainpaw. Cool Tofu Salad Satisfaction, French Vietnamese Cupcakes on Colfax, and Zolo's Famous Corn Soup by John Lundorf. Legalization is Working by Will Brenza. Le Très Riche Heure de Susan Nevelo Mart by Steve Elder. Schumer Mansion and a Green Future by Dave Anderson. Astrology by Rob Bresny. Just a Wink of the Eye. Les Claypool on South Park and Almost 40 Years of Primus, by Adam Perry. When you call up Primus bassist and singer-songwriter Les Claypool, it's tough to know where to start the conversation. His work with Oysterhead, The Frog Brigade, Duo de Twang, and Sean Lennon just scrapes the tip of the Bay Area native's gigantic career in music. And he's also a filmmaker and father, some folks remember Claypool only for a hit 1995 single in which he sang Winona loved her big brown beaver and she stroked him all the time. But in reality, he and his Primus bandmates followed in the footsteps of Rush as a rock trio that could play truly challenging, creative, awe-inspiring music while churning out unforgettably eccentric lyrics. The 58-year-old frontman, currently on tour with Primus, covering Rush's daunting 1977 album, A Farewell to Kings, got into Rush in junior high, and I got into Primus in the sixth grade. So, adolescent fandom seemed like as good an entryway as any. Boulder Weekly. Somebody gave me a copy of Sailing the Seas of Cheese at my 12th birthday party, and it changed my life. Primus became my first real favorite band, and kids really did say, Primus sucks to me all the time. And then, a couple of years later, you were suddenly a household name with two straight-up top ten albums. What was it like to be really weird and unique, yet popular? And who holds that mantle today? Les Claypool. Well, we had our toes in the mainstream. We were definitely not in heavy rotation on MTV. Even when the Winona video came out, they would only play it after midnight. We've always been those guys that sort of existed under the radar, you know? And we have since the get-go. We had a few little splashes with MTV and radio, but for the most part, we've been this cultish band. Who do I think is like that now? You've got people like St. Vincent. She's got a very interesting, unique perspective on things, and she does pretty well. I think there's always that element of people that have a little different take on things on the planet and look at the world a little differently. Every now and again, one of them pushes a button that people can identify with. We pushed kind of a small button, but we've been able to consistently hold this button down. 
We have a pretty loyal fan base, which is pretty amazing. It's gotten my son through college. Laughs. Boulder Weekly. I was actually going to ask if you have kids, because mine has been listening to Tommy the Cat and Winona since preschool, and is now 12 and saying, Papa, I know what these songs are about now. Was there a moment where your son got some of the puns in your songs? Les Claypool. There's really nothing to get. There's really no hidden tickle the taco meaning or anything like that in any of this stuff, you know? It's all pretty benign. You can take it however you want. But the original inspiration for Winona's Big Brown Beaver was me walking to the car after fly fishing with a good buddy of mine. And it was dusk, and I came around the corner, and it was very low light. And the thing saw me right as I saw it, and it flipped right in front of me and popped its tail. It was this giant, big brown beaver, and that got stuck in my head. Big brown beaver. It was originally just supposed to be this little hillbilly ditty, but the lyrics fit perfectly with this bass riff that I had. It just ended up being that tune, and it ended up being the tune that everybody gravitated toward when it was time to pick a single. It just sort of fell together. It was never meant to be this, oh, Les is trying to make this sexual innuendo. Obviously, there's a little dual entendre there, but it's more just a wink of the eye than anything. I'm not trying to get away with some little pervy notion or anything. Boulder Weekly. Conspiranoid, the new Primus EP, has an 11-minute track called Conspiranoia. What made you want to put together a sort of opus like that? Les Claypool. We have Herald of the Rocks, and these songs that are pretty long and progressive. We do have a pretty strong progressive element, so it doesn't just seem like that much of a stretch to me. The notion was, hey, we're getting ready to go do this rush thing again. We should have some new material. But we didn't feel the need to inflict a whole album on people. They're going to want to hear some of the old songs and the deep cuts. We all do that. When I would go see Rush back in the day, it was nice to hear a couple new songs, but I wanted to hear By Tor and Cygnus, and the songs that represent a time in my life of my youth and bring me back to that time when that was the soundtrack of my life. So we didn't want to put out a whole new record and subject people to that. The thought was, let's do a 20-minute song, and it turned out to be an 11-minute song. I had this notion of conspiranoia that I'd been kicking around for a while in notebooks, and I had the whole chorus in my head. I brought it in, and we just fleshed it out, and when we needed a B-side, and when we realized we need two B-sides, because this is a long-ass song for vinyl. Boulder Weekly do you feel shocked by the whole QAnon thing and space lasers and Pizzagate? Or do you feel like when Trump was elected, that kind of person just felt more comfortable admitting they believe stuff like that? Elsie. Well, we live in a time when people feel somewhat entitled to offer their opinions, and they have a platform now that didn't exist before. Now you have this machismo that you didn't really see so much of before the internet, because you can be this phantom in space that throws your opinion out there. I actually find some of it humorous, and I find some of it frightening. So that's what the song Conspiranoia is about. There's a lot of elements within the content that is factual, and some is fiction, but it's all based on this notion of myth and misinformation being held as gospel. Boulder Weekly What's it like having Tim Herb Alexander back in the band? 
People like me who are growing up when Primus broke out think of him as the drummer in the band. But when I was old enough to see concerts, you had Brain and then Jay Lane on drums. Elsie, well, both Brain and Jay Lane were in Primus before Tim Alexander. Tim happened to be the ninth drummer that Primus has had since I started the band in 1984. Tim is the voice of Primus for the drums, but we came to an impasse in the late 90s. He wanted to do other things, and we were fine with that. We brought in Brain, who had history with us, and he was friends with Lur, guitarist Larry Lalonde. It seemed very logical, and Brain is a monster. He's very different. He's more of a Bonham player. Tim's more of a Bruford, Neil Part player. Tim came back again, and it worked out for a little while, and then it didn't, and we brought in Jay, who was in the band right before Tim was originally in the band. He was kind of the one who set the tone for Primus, for what you know, before Herb stepped in. It was another very logical choice. He'd been in Sausage and Frog Brigade, and we had a lot of history together. Bands are very passionate, emotional relationships. It's like a marriage, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes you get back together, and sometimes you don't. It's wonderful that he's back, and it's wonderful that we are all in the same headspace. Boulder Weekly. It's similar to Pearl Jam in a way, because they've had five drummers, and people want to hear the drummer who was on the album that got them in the band. Fans get really attached. Elsie. As they should. You do the best you can, but it's like staying married for the kids. At some point, you gotta do what keeps you moving forward. Boulder Weekly. How did you decide to play Rush on the road? Elsie. We had always joked we should go out and do Hemispheres in its entirety, because we did the Willy Wonka thing. We did the Goblins record years ago, and I did Pink Floyd's Animals with the Frog Brigade. We had always kind of joked about it, but then we thought, maybe we should do something like that. You have to do Cygnus 1 before you do Cygnus 2, and 2112 seemed too obvious, and moving pictures seemed too obvious, so Farewell to Kings just seemed like the right record to do. Boulder Weekly. Primus actually toured with Rush just after breaking out in the early 90s. What was that like for you, having grown up a huge fan? LC. When I was first starting to play, and all throughout high school, Rush was an obsession of mine. It happened to be one of the things that Primus was able to connect over, because we have such varied backgrounds, but we were always able to come together on Rush. Doing the tour with them was amazing. It was like meeting Evil Knievel or something, such a big part of your youth. To be able to go out and tour with them was pretty amazing, and they became very good friends of ours, so that's always a bonus. Boulder Weekly. You're doing these two South Park 25th anniversary shows at Red Rocks, August 9th and 10th. Does the anniversary take you back to the 90s, a time when a band like Primus and a show like South Park could get a real shot at the mainstream? LC. South Park was just these college kids that had this video that was popular on the internet. And they were big Primus fans. They got hold of us and they said, Will you do the music? We've got a pilot we're going to do for Comedy Central. We never even thought it would get on television, let alone take over the world, and that is mainstream. South Park is a huge cultural phenomenon, and that's an example right there of something no one would have ever expected to be such a huge, huge part of our culture. 
It's a continuously relevant social statement that seems to not wane through time. Boulder Weekly. Ween is also playing, and I remember them being on Beavis and Butthead, and popping their head into the mainstream with Push the Little Daisies. What parallels do you see between Primus and Ween? You started around the same time, but were on different coasts. Elsie. There are definitely some kindred spirits there. I'm buddies with Diener, and we've got a lot of the same perspective on things, both musically and creatively in general, and we both like to fish. I think it's just the notion of taking a satirical poke at the world with your music, and it works with the whole South Park mentality. I think that what you've got there is a show of birds of a feather flocking together. I think it's going to be spectacular. Boulder Weekly. Heading back to Red Rocks, what comes to mind when you think of Colorado? Elsie. Colorado's always been a warm spot for us. One, Red Rocks is one of the greatest venues in the world. Our first away-from-home trip was to Boulder, and that was when South Park guys first saw us. We were asked to go out and do some shows in Boulder, and they gave us a train ticket on Antrac. We came out and played Alfred Packer Day at the college there, and Matt Stone and Trey Parker were there in the audience, and they saw us and flipped out, and they were big fans from that point on. It's kind of interesting that that's how it all started, on our very first trip to Boulder many years ago. On the Bill, Primus, 7.30pm, Tuesday and Wednesday, August 9th and 10th, Red Rocks Amphitheatre, Morrison. For a full list of tour dates, visit primusville.com. A Volcanic Love Triangle Producer Shane Boris on Fire of Love by Michael J. Casey We think of this film as a love triangle between Maurice and Katia, the volcano and the spirit of the French New Wave, Shane Boris tells me over the phone. The L word comes up a lot in our chat about Katia and Maurice Kraft. What's interesting about them is that they died doing what they love, but they also lived doing what they love, Boris says. I think that's what's really incredible about them. Incredible is another perfect descriptor for the crafts. They were French volcanologists whose love for volcanoes was only surpassed by their love for each other. Rare are marriages this strong and obsessions this captivating. It's what makes Fire of Love fantastic. Directed by Sarah Dosa and produced by Boris, Fire of Love is compiled from over 200 hours of archival 16mm footage shot by the crafts. We were just completely blown away, Boris says. We had a hard time conceiving of how anything could be better than the footage they shot and the history of their life that they told. And how they told that story is half of the fun. In hopes of attracting funding, Katia and Maurice brought cameras wherever they went to document their research. They became volcanology pioneers because of the risk they were willing to take to get the most perfect shot imaginable, Boris says. Constructing Fire of Love primarily from archival footage is a bit of a departure for Boris. Born and raised in Littleton and a graduate of Colorado Academy, Boris turned his attention to documentary filmmaking after a chance encounter with a producer on a flight to India changed everything. That was over 20 years ago, and since, 
Boris has produced a dozen docs, including 2019's Academy Award-nominated Edge of Democracy. Verité is his métier, with stories developing in real time. But, as is the refrain these days, the pandemic put a stop to that. That's when Boris and Dosa, who were familiar with the crafts while researching their previous doc, The Seer and the Unseen, became aware of the treasure trove the crafts had compiled. Sarah Dosa and our incredible editors, Aaron Casper and Jocelyn Chaput, went through all of this footage, Boris says, slowly trying to build the story of the film using the footage and the trail that Maurice and Katya left behind. The story they discovered was chock-full of interesting anecdotes, incredible footage, and detailed explanations of the science of volcanology, Boris explains. But it was also replete with a tremendous amount of questions and unknowns, many of which we would never be able to understand. So, they turned to the craft's written material and the photos left behind. Interviews with colleagues, friends, and family followed. But it still wasn't enough, Boris says. We needed something else. That something else was narration. Enter Miranda July. Someone who would approach it with the spirit of curiosity and attempt to get closer and a better understanding of the crafts and what they thought, even with the recognition that we would never fully understand. For more, tune in to After Image Fridays at 3 p.m. on KGNU, 88.5 FM, and online at kgnu.org. Email editorial at boulderweekly.com. Corn do's and don'ts. Grilled, cooler cooked, or butter poached. Here's how to appreciate freshly picked local sweet corn. By John Lendorf. For true believers, corn comes slathered with anxiety and an expiration date. On the way back from swimming at the pond with us kids, my mother always stopped at a specific farm for the sweetest sweet corn. It was special because they picked corn all day, not just in the morning. We had to get it home fast, shucked and into salted boiling water and rolled over a pound of butter. My mom became hot rod rosy and sped home. It was as if the ears were labeled best eaten by 6 p.m., and the pleasure encased in those yellow and white kernels would disappear like a wisp of smoke in a breeze. People have been appreciating corn in this area for a long time. Research suggests that maize, corn, and squash were brought to the Colorado Plateau by immigrants from the south about 1000 to 2000 BCE. Now, the state is known for Olaf and other varieties whose sweetness seems impervious to time or refrigeration. But mom was still right. The sooner you eat corn after it's picked, the better it tastes. However, she was wrong about the boiling water and the salt. First, when you pick up a dozen ears at the farm stand or market, be sure to go through the corn buying ritual. Look for green outer husks, lots of silk, and firm kernels when you peel it back a little. Pick the heavy ones. Great corn requires only a minimal amount of cooking, but the technique matters a lot to the final taste. So don't boil them in water. That can harden the kernels, as does adding a bunch of salt to the water. Salt it when you're ready to eat it. To grill corn. Preheat your gas grill. Shuck the outer leaves and silk, 
leave the inner leaves to help retain moisture, and roast the ears for about 10 minutes, rolling them frequently. When grilling naked cobs, brush first with vegetable oil before grilling 8 to 10 minutes. Serve immediately. To steam corn. Add an inch or so of water to a big pot and a steamer basket. When the water starts to boil, add the shucked ears, cover the pot, and steam for about four minutes. Serve immediately. To microwave corn. Corn on the cob cooks remarkably well in the microwave, as long as you don't overzap it. It works best if you cook unshucked ears for about three minutes. Remove, cool slightly, shuck, and serve the ears immediately. To make cooler corn. Clean out an insulated cooler. Add about a gallon of boiling water and a dozen or more shucked ears. Close the top and about 20 minutes later, voila, the corn is cooked and will remain warm in the cooler for quite a while. To make coal charred corn. You have to wait until your charcoal fire has become just hot coals, but it's well worth it for the flavor. Pre-soak unhusked corn in salted water and then place the ears directly on the hot coals. Turn them for about 10 minutes. Husk and serve immediately. To make butter poached corn. This may seem excessive, but if you like buttered corn, this is the supreme technique. First, melt two or three pounds or more of good unsalted butter. Add shucked ears of corn or cobets to barely simmering butter. Cover and cook for about six minutes. Serve immediately. About the butter, you can either poach other foods in it, chicken breasts and lobster tails come to mind, or strain the corn-accented butter and use it for baking and sautéing. Use fresh Boulder County corn on the cob to make the Zolo Grill's famous jalapeno corn soup. See the recipe in Cuisine. The Nibbles Index, Menu Scanning. 87. That's the percentage of consumers who say they prefer reading menus on paper versus scanning QR codes, according to a national technomic survey. More than 55% said digital menus are hard to read on a phone. Local food news, New Lions Bistro. Chef Theo Adley has opened Marigold, an Italian-slash-French bistro, at 405 Main Street in Lyons. Coming soon, Bambay Brewing, 100 Superior Plaza Way, Superior. Landline Donuts and Coffee in Longmont is serving a summer chiller, Dole Whip Pineapple Soft Serve Dairy-Free Sorbet. Salida's Dram Apothecary has introduced canned adaptogenic mushroom cola infused with cordyceps, chaga, reishi, and shiitake mushrooms. Dogs at the Table Comments, both very pro and very con, are pouring in from readers and folks who work at Boulder County eateries about whether dogs should be allowed to dine in restaurants. Send your opinion to me for an upcoming column at nibbles at boulderweekly.com. Words to chew on. Roasted in the husk in the hottest possible oven for 40 minutes, shucked at the table, and buttered and salted, nothing else, it is ambrosia. No chef's ingenuity and imagination have ever created a finer dish. From the 1964 novel Murder is Corny by Rex Stout. John Lendorf hosts Radio Nibbles at 8.20 a.m. Thursdays on KGNU, 88.5 FM, KGNU.org.
The Distilling Dames of Drylands, a celebration of spirited women at the Longmont Distillery, by Matt Mainpaw. We just want to hang out and drink together, says Kelly Dressman, brand manager at Dryland Distillers in Longmont. Dressman refers to the sense of camaraderie that flows between the sisterhood of employees that help operate breweries and distilleries throughout the county and surroundings, from bar staff to brand managers and beyond. That booze-born friendship is what gave Dressman the reins for the Distilling Dames, Dryland Distillers, All Women Cocktail and Spirits Club. All the members of the Dames definitely have an interest in what we do and how we do it. They love the informational piece, Dressman says. But it's amazing to see all of the different friendships blossom. Originally founded by Jenna Poppenhagen, a Longmont server and bartender looking for educational opportunities for herself and other women with a passion for spirits and distillation, the Dames predates the opening of Dry Land's original location. The group would visit a variety of local distillers, learning about their unique offerings and techniques, all while enjoying a libation or two. The Dames have grown in the past five years, from just a few people to more than 30 active members, and a couple dozen more on the email list. Dressman said that the ranks swelled during the pandemic, with more women feeling restless and eager to socialize. The Dames did virtual meetings during the shutdowns, she explains, offering cocktail kits they could make at home during the sessions. Monthly meetings vary in subject, from making bitters and simple syrups to cocktail classes. The most recent meeting was focused on tasting Dryland's signature spirit, a mesquite-smoked cactus spirit similar to mezcal. The timing was fortuitous, Dressman says. It's not often that we have Blanco, Reposado, and Aneo available in the tasting room, she explains. So we got to talk all about cactus and the dive into the varieties of mezcal and the geographic designations. Dressman's enthusiasm for cocktails and spirits is palpable in conversation, but don't call her pretentious or a snob. I like to use the term discerning, she says, with a laugh. People say I'm a snob. I tell them I'm just discerning with my vices. Jokes aside, Dressman and the Dames want to make a space for curious enthusiasts to explore a side of the bar not often seen. When Dryland moved into its current space, owner Nels Rowe gave the Dames a personal tour before the tasting room opened. Other meetings have involved bottling, barreling, and weighing in on the spirit cuts coming off the still itself. Dressman hopes to get a mash day on the schedule for the dames, so that they can get first-hand experience with the beginning of the distillation process. Keeping with Dryland's ethos of locally sourced and environmentally conscious process and product, dames' meetings have also focused on produce straight from the garden. The occasional cocktail developed in a dames' meeting can wind up on Dryland's cocktail menu, like the lilac blush from this past spring. We stick more to dry land's roots and get things fresh from the ground, she explains. A lot of that carries through into the dames. Annual membership with the dames runs $149 per person, which includes a cocktail each meeting, a t-shirt, and a small bottle of dry land spirits. Dressmen and the dames try to keep variety in the meetings, but offerings like bitters and cocktail classes often see an annual return.
At this point, we've done a lot of different things, and we try not to recycle them. But there's a lot of demand from new members for things they've missed, Dressman says. If you're doing something like making bitters, it's okay to do it again. Our members can develop new varieties for their cocktails. Cool tofu salad satisfaction, French Vietnamese cupcakes on Colfax, and Zolo's famous corn soup by John Lindorf. I've been sipping stout at Boulder's Mountain Sun Pub since it opened in 1993, typically paired with a good cheeseburger and hot fries. Especially in the dark months, that comfort trio filled various voids. However, on a hot July afternoon at Table Mesa's Southern Sun Pub, I looked at the menu and leaned toward the light and a Thai tofu salad. I like fried tofu cubes anyway, especially in Asian dishes, but the pub's house-made garbanzo tofu upgrades the taste and texture of the vegan protein. Tossed in a sweet chili dressing, it's a chewy treat topping spinach, veggies, pickled carrots, and toasted cashews in a ginger and lime dressing. I also shared a boom-boom sandwich, basically an Italian Philly steak sub without the steak. Ciabatta bread is packed with chewy mushroom fillets, roasted red peppers, melted mozzarella, basil, and roasted garlic mayo. The stouts can wait for the February freeze. I abided with a mellow Sobchak Pilsner. Another road food attraction, transcultural cupcakes. On the road in the Denver area, it's fun to simply search for bakeries near me. That's how I found Bon and Butter Bakery Cafe at 9935 East Colfax Ave in Aurora. It's a new place from Toa Nguyen, the next generation of the family that made Denver's new Saigon restaurant a culinary landmark. Situated in the former Third Culture Mochi Donut site, this bakery beautifully melds three dessert and bread traditions, French, Vietnamese, and American. The glass cases are filled with pastries and desserts, including filled croissants, fruit cruffins, multi-layer stacked mill crepe cakes, and egg tarts. Using fresh house-baked chewy baguettes, the cafe also dishes made-to-order banh mi sandwiches, layered with cold cuts or vegan pâté, plus pickled daikon and carrots, cilantro, cukes, jalapeno, and garlic aioli. Given the choices, I was captured by the serious cupcakes in cool fillings, flavors and frostings ranging from bright green pandan coconut to purple ube. For the haul back up to Louisville, I paired a well-crafted soft-crumbed cupcake that combined the flavors of Thai iced tea paired with an iced Vietnamese coffee. Recipe flashback. Soup off the cob. Boulder's Zolo Grill was well-known for its southwestern cuisine before being shuttered during the pandemic. Over the years, Colorado's famous sweet corn was showcased on the menu every summer, including in this memorable soup. Zolo's executive chef, Paul Schutt, shared this recipe in the 1990s. For added corn oomph, simmer the scraped corn cobs in water, strain, and use the liquid instead of water in the recipe. Zolo Grill Corn Jalapeno Soup 3 tablespoons butter 2 cups white onion, diced 3 cloves garlic, minced 1 jalapeno, stemmed and de-seeded 
one ancho chile, stemmed and de-seeded, one-eighth teaspoon chopped fresh thyme, one-eighth teaspoon chopped fresh oregano, three tablespoons minced fresh cilantro, one-quarter teaspoon ground cumin, one-quarter teaspoon chili powder, one-eighth teaspoon ground black pepper, two and a half cups fresh corn off the cob, two and a half cups water, two corn tortillas, salt to taste, sour cream for topping. Preheat the oven to 350 degrees. Saute all items except the last four in butter until onions are light brown. Add water and bring to a boil. Cut one corn tortilla into strips and toast strips and a whole tortilla until golden brown. After the soup comes to a boil, add the whole toasted tortilla. Save the strips for a garnish. Remove soup from heat and let it cool for 10 minutes. Puree soup in a blender until creamy. Return to low heat on the stove. Taste and adjust salt. Place in wide bowls and garnish with tortilla strips and sour cream. Culinary Calendar, Sake and Chocolate Colorado Sake Company in Denver hosts an August 3rd Sake and Artisan Chocolate Tasting, coloradosakeco.com. Slow Food Denver hosts a September 17th dinner at Hope Hill Farm in Lafayette with Chef Sam McCandless of Boulder's Corrida, slowfooddenver.org slash summer dash slow dash down. Don't miss the Summer 2022 Guide to Boulder County's Roadside Farm Stands, available at boulderweekly.com. Legalization is working. Border Patrol sees notable drop in cannabis seizures as surge in harder drugs floods the market. By Will Brenza. It was around 3 a.m. when Border Patrol agents stopped the black GMC truck just outside of Campo, California. It was a routine ordeal until their canine alerted to the scent of drugs and the agents subsequently found 250 pounds of pills laced with fentanyl, a haul worth over $3,679,000. Our agents prevented these dangerous narcotics from reaching our communities, Chief Patrol Agent Aaron Hetke said of the bust. I am proud to say that our Border Patrol agents here in San Diego sector are responsible for over 50% of all the fentanyl seized by the U.S. Border Patrol in this fiscal year. In 2021, U.S. drug seizures like these rose 25% over the previous year. Within that, cocaine seizures doubled, methamphetamine seizures tripled, and fentanyl interdiction spiked by sevenfold, says the Border Report. That's despite the agency's claim that over 60,000 drug traffickers slipped through Border Patrol's grasp last year, despite its complaints of being understaffed and under-resourced. But not all drugs saw those wildly increased traffic rates. Marijuana seizures, by contrast, dropped substantially in 2021 and are continuing to do so in 2022. Last year, agencies seized 160 tons of cannabis, or about 874 pounds every day. Whereas this year, with three months left in 2022, agents have seized just 56 tons, an average of 408 pounds a day. That's a 54% reduction in just one year. Since 2018, cannabis seizures have dropped by 71%. 
It's a trend that isn't slowing down either. Even as other drugs flood across the border at increasing rates, cannabis smuggling is a dying enterprise, according to Border Patrol and other agencies. Overall, DEA marijuana seizures have been declining since 2015. The U.S. Department of Justice, DOJ, and Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA, 2020 National Drug Threat Assessment Survey reads, The decrease in seizures is most likely caused by the challenges presented by the changing marijuana legal landscape. That's about as close as the DOJ and DEA have ever come to admitting that legalization is working. According to them, the challenges presented by the legal landscape are that it's effectively diminishing U.S. demand for black market cannabis as users seek safer, higher quality, legally available alternatives. Domestic businesses are making money that's being taxed, and which would have otherwise gone straight into cartel coffers. As a result, the cartels are pivoting. They've ramped up production and transportation of other highly addictive and oftentimes deadly drugs like fentanyl and meth. Between 2018 and 2021, meth seizures rose by 128%, and synthetic opioids like fentanyl rose 456%, according to Wola.org. The cartel is also getting increasingly involved in human trafficking, according to area law enforcement. Officers from the Mexican state of Chihuahua are reporting that cartels are moving to replace independent human smugglers with their own affiliated gang members. Arizona police have reported similar things in Sonora, where the Sinaloa cartel has started forcing migrants to wear huge packs of drugs as they cross the border, effectively turning innocent migrants into fully-blown drug mules. Prohibition continues to fuel this, and not the prohibition of cannabis, but the prohibition of drugs in general. With the demand for black market cannabis declining and enforcement for other drugs still escalating, the cartels are making a strategic business decision. They're shifting their smuggling tactics to move substances that are far more potent, far easier to smuggle in large quantities, far more addictive, and far more lucrative than cannabis because they're still illegal. It's a classic case of the Iron Law of Prohibition. See Weed Between the Lines, The Iron Law of Prohibition, May 12th, 2022. That as law enforcement becomes more intense, the potency of prohibited substances increases. Or, more simply, the harder the enforcement, the harder the drugs. And the more of them. As evidenced by the simultaneous 25% increase in seized drugs and nearly 50% decrease in cannabis seizures the very same year. Cannabis legalization is working, even though there are still several states upholding prohibition, and even though the federal government has yet to make any meaningful progress to decriminalize it, the black market for cannabis is withering in the U.S. An outcome that shows how legal regulation not only makes a product safer, but takes business away from some of the most dangerous criminal enterprises on the planet. An outcome that could be achieved with every street drug, if there was the right kind of political will in Washington. Because legalization is the only way America's never-ending drug war will ever actually be won, the only way to truly stop those truckloads of fentanyl pills from ever entering this country, instead of trying to catch them once they're already here. Cannabis seizures, however, have plummeted over the last decade as more U.S. states have legalized recreational and medical use of marijuana. 
The 58,000 pounds of cannabis seized at the border during the first nine months of fiscal 2022 are equivalent to what would have been seized in a typical week in 2013. Le Très Riche Heure de Susan Nevelo Mart by Steve Elder Susan Nevelo Mart, beloved director of the Wise Law Library at CU, is retiring. She will be missed. The sun was bright upon us once. We thought we could outstare the moon. But it's still there, slowly winking. Now the gold flourisher crops the tension. Out are memories, outcomes established. First glances, first kisses, first ecstasies. Warm invitations to the feast of life. Steak a poivre, marcona almonds. The taste of cherry, toasted sesame oil. A dewy vineyard at dawn, petting zoo child smiles. First stereo, first album, dancing. Alone or not, clad or not. Bon voyage kisses, I'll miss you, with a parenthetical hug. There was a time when gravity was kinder. If we floated around procrastinating, at least we had something to do. Now the sun has our back. It does a backbend and memorializes our memories as we live them, as we walk in freedom, of an uncreated jubilance, unforced and awarely, connoisseurs of the condition to be. Steve Elder is in charge of tea service at the University of Colorado Law Library. Schumer, Mansion, and a Green Future by Dave Anderson Recently, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that fossil fuel-driven climate chaos is ravaging the planet. He said, we have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. Greenhouse gas concentrations, sea level rise, and ocean heat have broken new records. Half of humanity is in the danger zone from floods, droughts, extreme storms, and wildfires. The climate movement has grown by leaps and bounds, but the fight for a sustainable future is tough. The fossil fuel industry has a stranglehold on the Republican Party and has had considerable clout in the Democratic Party. However, Joe Biden's Build Back Better BBB proposals had impressive environmental measures. The physical infrastructure, roads and bridges, component of BBB would turn into a smaller bipartisan bill that passed and became law. The human infrastructure bill was passed by a Democratic majority in the House, but was killed in the Senate by 50 Republicans and two Democrats, Joe Manchin, West Virginia, and Kirsten Sinema, Arizona. That bill was designed to improve conditions for families with universal pre-K and subsidized child care, paid family and medical leave, free community college, and expanded tax credits. Other progressive bills died in the Senate after passing in the House. Nevertheless, the negotiations about a Democrats-only, filibuster-proof budget reconciliation package went on. This angered Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who threatened to sabotage CHIPS, a bipartisan bill to boost the U.S. semiconductor industry, which many Republicans supported. But then, Joe Manchin announced that he was quitting the negotiations over BBB. He was done. Democrats were enraged. McConnell rejoiced and let the CHIPS bill pass. 
A few hours later, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Manchin surprised everyone by saying they had a reconciliation deal which was more than 700 pages long. They had been negotiating for many months. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act, IRA. The bill includes $369 billion for energy security and climate change, which is projected to reduce carbon emissions in the U.S. by 40%. Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat, California, said the agreement will mark a historic direct investment in renewable energy and will unleash hundreds of billions of private investment for moonshot projects. Kana is a leading progressive Democrat who co-chaired Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. The bill also includes a 15% corporate minimum tax on companies with profits of more than $1 billion a year. It would also continue expansions to the Affordable Care Act that passed during the pandemic through 2025, and allow Medicare to pursue lower drug costs by negotiating directly with drug companies. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the country's leading business lobby, has pledged to oppose much of the bill. It would significantly raise taxes on the rich, and it would give the underfunded Internal Revenue Service its biggest budget increase in history, $80 billion over 10 years. This would certainly be the biggest corporate tax increase in decades, said Steve Wamhoff, a tax expert at Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, a liberal think tank. We've had decades of tax policy benefiting the rich, but this is really the first attempt to raise revenue in a progressive way that would begin to combat wealth and income inequality. National climate groups have criticized the bill for helping the fossil fuel industry. Manchin said it has all-of-the-above energy strategy. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, the bill would require the Interior Department to offer at least 2 million acres of public lands and 60 million acres of offshore waters for oil and gas leasing each year for a decade as a prerequisite to installing any new solar or wind energy. If the department failed to offer these minimum amounts for leasing, no right-of-ways could be granted for any utility-scale renewable energy project on public lands or waters. That's bad. Manchin is a coal multimillionaire who has received the most money from the oil and gas industry of any senator in this current electoral cycle. He is a unique Democratic senator. Trump won 70% of the vote in West Virginia. The coal industry is dying, and Trump promised to bring it back. But Manchin acknowledges reality. An analysis of the bill by online environmental magazine Grist notes, The bill invests in almost every kind of clean electricity generation imaginable, and offers grants and loans to speed up the development of new transmission lines to carry that clean power to customers. Existing tax credits for wind and solar would be extended and made more accessible to tribes, municipal utilities, and rural cooperatives. These energy projects would get more money creating clean jobs in areas that have long been hubs for fossil fuel work. This opinion column does not necessarily reflect the views of Boulder Weekly. Astrology, August 4th, 2022 by Rob Bresney. Aries, March 21st to April 19th. Tips to get the most out of the coming weeks. 1. Exercise your willpower at random moments just to keep it limber. 
Two, be adept at fulfilling your own hype. Three, argue for fun. Be playful and frisky as you banter. Disagree for the sport of it, without feeling attached to being right or needing the last word. Four, be unable to understand how anyone can resist you or not find you alluring. Five, declare yourself president of everything, then stage a coup d'etat. Six, smile often when you have no reason to. Seven, if you come upon a square peg round hole situation, change the shape of the hole. Taurus, April 20th to May 20th. If I had to choose a mythic deity to be your symbolic helper, I would pick Venus. The planet Venus is ruler of your sign, and the goddess Venus is the maven of beauty and love, which are key to your happiness. But I would also assign Hephaestus to you Tauruses. He was the Greek god of the metalworking forge. He created Zeus's thunderbolts, Hermes' winged helmet, Aphrodite's magic bra, Achilles' armor, Eros's bow and arrows, and the thrones for all the deities in Olympus. The things he made were elegant and useful. I nominate him to be your spirit guide during the next ten months. May he inspire you to be a generous source of practical beauty. Gemini, May 21st to June 20th. To be a true Gemini, you must yearn for knowledge. Whether it's about coral reefs, ancient maps of Sumer, sex among jellyfish, mini black holes, your friends' secrets, or celebrity gossip. You need to be an eternal student who craves education. Are some things more important to learn than others? Of course. But that gauge is not always apparent in the present. A seemingly minor clue or trick you glean today may become unexpectedly helpful a month from now. With that perspective in mind, I encourage you to be promiscuous in your lust for new information and teachings in the coming weeks. Cancer. June 21st to July 20th. Cancerian drummer Ringo Starr is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Though he has received less acclaim than his fellow Beatles, many critics recognize him as a skillful and original drummer. How did he get started? At age 13, he contracted tuberculosis and lived in a sanatorium for two years. The medical staff encouraged him to join the hospital band, hoping it would stimulate his motor skills and alleviate his boredom. Ringo used a makeshift mallet to bang the cabinet near his bed. Good practice. That's how his misfortune led to his joy and success. Is there an equivalent story in your life, Cancerian? The coming months will be a good time to take that story to its next level. Leo, July 23rd to August 22nd. One of the inspiring experiments I hope you will attempt in the coming months is to work on loving another person as wildly and deeply and smartly as you love yourself. In urging you to try this exercise, I don't mean to imply that I have a problem with you loving yourself wildly and deeply and smartly. I endorse your efforts to keep increasing the intensity and ingenuity with which you adore and care for yourself. But here's a secret. Learning to summon a monumental passion for another soul may have the magic power of enhancing your love for yourself. Virgo, August 23rd to September 22nd. Musician Viv Albertine has recorded four albums and played guitar for The Slits, a famous punk band. She has also written two books and worked as a TV director for 20 years. Her accomplishments are impressive, yet she also acknowledges that she has spent a lot of time in bed for many reasons, needing to rest, seeking refuge to think and meditate, recovering from illness, feeling overwhelmed or lonely or sad. She admiringly cites other creative people who, like her, have worked in their beds. Emily Dickinson, Patti Smith, Edith Sitwell, Frida Kahlo.
I mention this, Virgo, because the coming days will be an excellent time for you to seek sanctuary and healing and creativity in bed. Libra, September 23rd to October 22nd. Libran author Catherine Mansfield wrote, The mind I love must have wild places, a tangled orchard where dark damsons drop in the heavy grass, an overgrown little wood, the chance of a snake or two, and a pool that nobody's fathomed the depth of. Be inspired by her in the coming weeks, Libra. I suspect you will flourish if you give yourself the luxury of exploring your untamed side. The time is ripe to wander in nature and commune with exciting influences outside your comfort zone. What uncharted frontier would you enjoy visiting? Scorpio. October 23rd to November 21st. When you are functioning at your best, you Scorpios crave only the finest, top-quality highs. You embrace joys and pleasures that generate epiphanies and vitalizing transformations. Mediocre varieties of fun don't interest you. You avoid debilitating indulgences that provide brief excitement but spawn long-term problems. In the coming weeks, dear Scorpio, I hope you will embody those descriptions. It's crucial that you seek gratifications and declitations that uplift you, ennoble you, and bless your future. Sagittarius, November 22nd to December 21st. Wish on everything, advises Sagittarian author Francesca Leah Block. Pink cars are good, especially old ones. And first stars and shooting stars. Planes will do if they are the first light in the sky and look like stars. Wish in tunnels, holding your breath, and lifting your feet off the ground. Birthday candles, baby teeth. Your homework during the next two weeks, Sagittarius, is to build a list of further marvels that you will wish on. It's the magic wish season of the year for you, a time when you're more than likely to encounter and generate miracles. Be proactive. Oh, and very important, what are your top three wishes? Capricorn, December 22nd to January 19th. Author Aldous Huxley wrote that people do not learn much from the lessons of history is the most important lesson that history has to teach. While his observation is true much of the time, I don't think that will be so for you in the coming weeks. I suspect you will triumph over past patterns that have repeated and repeated themselves. You will study your life story and figure out what you must do to graduate from lessons that you have finally completely learned. Aquarius, January 20th to February 18th. In the film Eye Origins, a scientist says this to a lover. When the Big Bang happened, all the atoms in the universe were smashed together into one little dot that exploded outward. So my atoms and your atoms were together then. My atoms have always known your atoms. Although this sounds poetic, it's true in a literal sense. The atoms that compose you and me and everyone else were originally all squeezed together in a tiny space. We knew each other intimately. The coming days will be an excellent time to celebrate your fundamental link with the rest of the universe. You'll be extra receptive to feeling connection. You'll be especially adept at fitting your energy together with others. You'll love the sensation of being united, merged, blended. Pisces, February 19th to March 20th. My Piscean friend Luna sent me a message that sums up how I feel about you these days. I'll repeat it here in the hope that it will inspire you to be perfectly yourself. Luna said, every time I meet someone who was born within the two weeks of my birthday, I end up with the impression that they are the loopiest and wisest person I've met in a long time. They are totally ridiculous and worthy of profound respect. They are unhinged and brilliantly focused. They are fuzzy-headed dreamers who couldn't possibly ever get anything practical accomplished. And they are lyrical thinkers who charm me with their attunement to the world's beauty and impress me with their understanding of how the world works. Ha 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 ha.
Lucky for me, I know the fool is sacred. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.